Hello, welcome to Feed, Play, Love, the bite-sized podcast for parents and carers. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Today, we're revisiting one of our favourite interviews from the archive. I hope you enjoy it. Blood, they say, is thicker than water. But try telling that to your heartbroken one-year-old after his sister has just thumped him for no particular reason. We all love our kids, and most of us would like them to love each other just as much. But how do you raise your children to be friends? They can be so different from one another, and especially when they're little, they both need you so much. Dr. Laura Markham has a PhD in clinical psychology from Columbia University and is the author of Calm Parents, Happy Siblings, How to Stop the Fighting and Raise Friends for Life. Hi, Laura. Welcome to Kindling Conversation. Thank you for having me. The basis of your book really is about calm parenting, which can sometimes feel like an oxymoron. You have two children yourself. Did you learn how to be a calm parent through them? No, my children did not teach me how to be a calm parent. In fact, <laughs> uh, they didn't. Uh, really, I learned to be a calm parent by deciding I was going to do it, by committing myself to it, and then step by step, I just found ways to do it. So my meditation practice, I think, was really important to me, and learning to take care of myself as I went through the day was really important to me because I would get towards the end of the day and I would run out of inner resources. I would just be, I'm hungry, I'm tired, I you know, haven't had a moment to myself all day, I don't have anything left. So I think, I think some sort of mindfulness practice is really helpful, but always hard to do when you have children. So even something minimal really helps. And I think training yourself to say, what do I need right now to stay in balance? And lo and behold, you might need to eat something, you know, or just... Take a few minutes to breathe, whatever it is. If we check in with ourselves, like every hour through the day, it's a whole lot better than just ignoring ourselves. And after a while, it becomes second nature to take better care of ourselves. And I think most mothers really have a hard time with this. So I think it's really well worth doing. And is part of calm parenting about seeing the world through your child's eyes? I would say... Calm parenting means that you make a commitment to regulate your own emotions. And that's really hard for most of us to do because we didn't necessarily grow up with great role models about how to do it, and we didn't really get told that this was part of what we needed to do to have children. We didn't understand that self-regulation is in some ways our most important job as parents. So I think that's why I mentioned a meditation practice and taking care of yourself as you go through your day because you can't stay calm and regulate your own emotions if you're at the end of your internal resources, if you're depleted. But then the question you just asked is, well, what does that have to do with seeing things from your child's point of view? And I would say that we can control ourselves more easily if we see things from our child's point of view. So if your child is having a hard time and they're acting out, and you look at your child and you say, that Brad, he's just making my life miserable today. Well, it's going to be hard to be a very patient person, you know, mother or father with your child at that point. But if you can see it from your child's point of view and you can say, well, it's really true that there's a new baby in the family, only a couple months old, and he's still having a hard time with that. And 
you know, I think he should just get used to it, but really he's having a hard time and he's letting me know that and he needs my understanding. At that point, it's a lot easier to regulate our own exasperation when our child acts out again, right? So seeing it from his point of view, I think, is tremendously helpful to our ability to empathize. And of course, it's also tremendously helpful to our little guy who's having such a hard time. In the book, Laura, you speak about using empathy to set limits. And um, sometimes I can I find this idea quite tough when, particularly when I have two children both crying in front of me. Um, if I give you an example, could you maybe help me with the right language I could use? Sure. So let's take my children. This is a common occurrence. Darcy, who's around three, will push her brother Arlo who's around one, push him over because he tried to grab one of her toys. Um, Arlo starts mm-hmm. crying, heartbroken, devastated. And then Darcy, sensing she's about to get in trouble, also starts to cry. Where should I start in that situation? Okay. Well, if one of your children is hurt, then I would always start with the child who's hurt. And there are two reasons for that. One, I think they need you more at that moment. The other child may be hurting psychologically, emotionally, but they're not hurting physically. But there's another reason, and that's that you can't intervene constructively if you're angry. So if she's just knocked Arlo down, then you're not feeling very kindly disposed towards her at the moment. (laughs) So I would say go straight to Arlo and say, oh, my goodness, you got knocked down. Ouch. Are you okay? Does that hurt? Ouch. Show me. And he's going to show you his owie, you know, that he got hurt. Or maybe he was just surprised, and you can say, That surprised you, right? Yeah. And that hurt your feelings too, didn't it? And you give him a hug, and he's fine. And then you turn to Darcy. Now, Darcy is actually crying because she knows she shouldn't have knocked her brother down. That's a good sign. It shows that she's developing a superego, which is the part of her that looks at it and says, oh, that's not the person I want to be. That's a good thing. So, She's looking at what she just did, and she's now crying, and she's saying, really, if she could articulate it, she would be saying to us, my brother, with whom I always have to share way too much, wanted my toy. He tried to get it. What was I supposed to do? I had to push him out of the way. And then he fell down and cried, and I felt terrible, like a really terrible person. But I'm always trapped in this situation. I have no idea how to solve this problem. That's what she would be saying. And so... As we turn to Darcy now, we want to recognize her experience and validate it and help her so that she can solve her problem in the future in some way other than pushing her brother down. So we turn to Darcy and we say, you're crying too. You're upset too, aren't you? Come here, sweetheart. Because now we feel a little better. You know, he's, <laughs> he's okay. Our vote clearly wasn't really hurt. It's all fine. Now we, can, we have extra empathy for her. So I'll come here, sweetheart, and you have another arm for her. He's maybe still in your your left arm, or maybe he's toddled off to do something else. And you put your arm around her, your right arm, and you say, you're upset, you're crying. So you don't have to say anything very intricate. You can just observe what you see, because most parents, if you're not practiced at doing this, couldn't just rattle off what I just did about what's going on in Darcy's head. All they can see is, okay, she's crying. Why is she crying? Is she trying to get out of being punished after she hurt her brother? You know, we don't know what's going on, right? So you just observe. You're upset, too. You're crying. You feel bad. Tell me about it. And then she says, 
What would she say? You're her mother. What would she say? She'd say he tried to take my joy. <laughs> exactly. So she's, she's explaining her problem to you. He tried to take my toy. Now, we think that's a really lousy reason to push him down. In fact, we think it's inexcusable. <laughs> yeah. But to her, she's explaining to you it's both why she's crying and why she did what she wasn't supposed to do. So she says, he tried to take my toy. And you say, oh, he tried to take your toy. And then you pushed him, right? Yeah, and then he was crying, right? Now, notice I'm not blaming her. I'm not shaming her at all. I'm just describing what happened in a, in a very warm voice where I'm staying connected to her. And then he started to cry, right? And then you started to cry. You felt bad, right? I don't think you like it when you push your brother. That didn't help. But you didn't know what to do, huh? What could you do next time when he tries to take your toy? So by now, she's probably moved through her tears and she's no longer crying and you've understood. So she's actually engaged in a verbal conversation. So you can say, she's three. What could you do next time? And she's going to look at you completely like, what are you talking about? (laughs) You have no idea. And you say, well, Arlo wanted your toy, right? He wanted that toy. This one here that you're holding? Right. He wanted it. And he reached for it, right? And so what did you do? You pushed him, right? Hmm, but pushing hurts. He fell down and then he cried. What could you do instead? Here, I'll be Arlo. I'm going to reach for the toy. What could you do? And then you actually practice with her. You're teaching skills. You say, she, she may not come up with an idea. And you say to her, I know. What if you gave me that? And you grab some other toy and put it in her other hand. And you say, give me that instead. See if that works. And then you say, okay, I'm Arlo. I'm reaching for your toy. And she's still staring. You say, okay, give me that other one. And you're teaching her to offer a trade. Right. Now, it will take her weeks before she learns this. But weeks from now, even if it's three or four or five weeks from now, she will be doing this regularly if you intervene this way every time. And, you know, we, we don't realize that kids actually need us to teach them how to solve their problems. She's having a very real problem with her little brother. She's solving it in the best way she sees at the moment when she's feeling threatened. But there are other ways, there are other solutions, and we can help her learn them. And how important in that process is it to teach her how to speak to her brother? Because even just this morning, um, something similar, similar to this happened. And I remember reading in part of your book something that was, seemed quite revelatory to me, which sounds silly because it was about teaching your kids to speak to each other about what's happening instead of coming to yeah. you and saying, mommy, he, he took my toy or that's not fair. Um, how important is it and what is our role as parents in teaching our children to actually talk about what's happening? Well, it's, I think, critical to do this and it's important for lots of reasons. The most important reason is that your children then learn the skills to work out conflicts for themselves. And conflict is a part of every human relationship. We're always saying to kids, use your words. Offer him this toy. You know, use your words. Don't knock him down. But she doesn't know what words to use, right? So in this case that you just described to me, you can say to Arlo, you didn't like that, did you? You can tell your sister, no, no push, ouch. Yeah, you didn't like that. And you give him a hug. That's it. Now, he's not likely to say that to his sister for 
months to come. But at some point, you're going to be in the kitchen and you're going to overhear and he's going to say, no, no push. And how great is that? And for her, she can start to use the words to say, oh, no, not that one. You can have this one. Now, he doesn't know what it means yet, but over time, he will. He'll learn, oh, she's offering me a trade. You're listening to Kindling Conversation, and we're speaking with Dr. Laura Markham, who's the author of Calm Parents, Happy Siblings, How to Stop the Fighting and Raise Friends for Life. How much, Laura, do we need to spend one-on-one time with each sibling? Because that can be quite challenging when you've got more than one child and you're working. And, um, you know, how much one-on-one time should we be spending with each of them? I think one-on-one time is critical because the best way to diminish sibling rivalry is for each child to really get that you could not possibly love anyone more than you love them. And you don't. You love your children. You, you know, you love Arlo more than you could ever love anyone in the world. And you love Darcy more than you could ever love anyone in the world, right? Yeah. And it's different because Arlo and Darcy are different people. They're different ages. And it will always be different. And you'll be maybe closer to one of them at one time in their life than another. You know, maybe you'll be closer to Arlo now because he's little and you'll be closer to Darcy when she's a teenager. Who knows, right? But I'm not talking about the closeness. I'm saying you could never love anyone more. And they need to believe that. And so for a child to believe that, they have to have one-on-one time with you. It's sort of like your husband doesn't believe it if you don't spend time with him, you know. (laughs) And... So they really do need that one-on-one time. So I know it's very hard for parents to fit that into life. So I say just start with 10 minutes a day. And if you have a one-year-old, for instance, hopefully they nap. So you have time for your three-year-old. If neither of your kids nap anymore, that means at least they're old enough that they could listen to an audio book. And audio books are a great way to keep kids absorbed because it's like being read to. And if it's a child who's very physically active and they can't stay in one place, you can also get them the book to read with it that they can flip through if it's a picture book. Or you can give them washable markers and a pad of paper and ask them to illustrate what they're listening to and show you the pictures when you come back in 10 minutes. Now, you obviously have to have a baby-proofed house to do this because three-year-olds can still get into substantial trouble. (laughs) But if you set them up this way and they're looking forward to their book, I don't mean they've never heard the book before and you say, oh, sit down and listen to this. I mean, you sit with them in the beginning as they begin to try this and listen to it and they get used to it and they like it and they're looking forward to the next chapter tomorrow. And you can actually have 10 minutes to spend with the other child. And what's your take on being fair? You can't always see who started the fight and saying you're as bad as each other can feel really unfair as well. You know, you don't want to take sides, but sometimes in life someone has done the wrong thing and the other person needs to see that that's been acknowledged. Is that a fair comment? That's a great question. So you actually don't know what happened. And so you may, if you jump in and decide who's right and who's wrong, you may be wrong. That's the first thing. But there's another part to it. Even if one person demonstrably did something wrong, What preceded that? Maybe yesterday the other kid did something to the other one, right? So if we're going to go by, oh, this child's right and this child's wrong, well, your older child will almost always be the one who's considered wrong, right? Certainly in your case with a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And 
most of the time, it's going to be that your three-year-old does something wrong to the one-year-old because the one-year-old doesn't know better. So even if he takes her toy, he's not wrong. She's wrong to clobber him, right? So here's the thing. If you say she's done something demonstrably wrong and we ne- he needs to see her be scolded for that or set, you know, set straight for that, what happens? Yes, he absolutely deserves protection. Yes, he needs to know that it's not okay for him to get hit. And if you're setting her straight and she's getting blamed for something, she's going to have a chip on her shoulder and you're going to find that she's going to do more and more negative things toward him. If instead you can avoid looking like you're siding with her, she's going to not hold it against him and you'll see a much warmer relationship between them. So you'll notice when she pushed him down, she clearly did something wrong, demonstrably wrong. She's not allowed to push her brother down, hitting hurts, pushing hurts. And we went to him, we said, ouch, that hurts. You can tell your sister you don't like that. So we're teaching him to stand up for himself. We're teaching him he doesn't deserve to be pushed down. Right? We're teaching him we care that he got hurt, but we didn't turn around and shame and blame her. Because if we'd done that, I guarantee you, you get more hitting and pushing because she feels bad about herself. And you mentioned something Does that make sense? It does. And and you brought up something there that I think um, a lot of people think a lot about, particularly if they had siblings growing up. And that's the place in uh, the family, you know, whether you're the eldest, the middle child or the youngest. How do parents deal with that so that people, you know, we talk about middle child syndrome or, you know, you're the eldest, so you had these responsibilities placed on you or, or those sorts of things. Is there a way of avoiding children having a sense of who they are just purely based on when they were born? Well, remember that those tendencies come about because of the child's experience, right? The child experiences being a middle child is very difficult because they never get the privileges of the older child and the attention for doing new things that the older child does. And they get pushed off mommy's lap because the baby comes along. So their experience of being a middle child is, I'm not valued in the same way as my siblings. I'm not as close to my parents as my siblings are. And that, in fact, is what middle children say. If we ask middle children, that's, those are the things they say. And so naturally, they act out. I'm not valued as much. I don't have as close a relationship. Wow, of course they act out. But here's the thing. They don't have to. That's their experience, not because they're middle children, but because it's the way life as a middle child often is. We as parents can notice that that's the vulnerability, and we can do something to avoid it. We can say, wow, my middle child got pushed off my lap when the baby came. I'm going to make sure I spend one-on-one time with my middle child so that she doesn't feel like she's not as close to me, so she doesn't feel valued you know, not valued as much, right? So we can always make up for the position in the family. And in fact, we know that if there's a middle child, if there are three children and the middle child is a different sex than the other two children, so there's one boy in the family, he's the middle one, or there's one girl, she's the middle one, we know they don't have as much tendency to middle child syndrome. Well, that's pretty interesting, isn't it? It's because they feel special, because their gender makes them special, because maybe dad says, well, you're my boy, let's go fishing, and there's a special relationship and a special value, even though they're the middle child.
the effort, but it also feels like it's very time consuming. And I just, I'm just curious to know whether you think at some point it becomes natural as opposed to you're in the moment, the proverbial's hitting the fan and you're thinking, oh no, what would Laura do? <laughs> Is there, <laughs> do you feel that it becomes a natural process after, after time? I absolutely feel it becomes a natural process over time. I think the hardest thing is beginning. In the beginning, it's really hard. But every time you're able to stop yourself from exploding at your child, because, you know, she pushed the baby down, of course we want to scold her, we want to smack her. And every time you stop yourself from doing that and you take a deep breath and you regulate your own emotions, you're rewiring your brain. So it gets easier and easier. And a year later, you can't remember the last time you exploded at your kid. We can take it one step at a time. And what we most need is to have compassion for ourselves because we're not going to be perfect. But, you know, it's like turning down a new road. It's going to get you to a different destination. It may seem like a lot more work to climb this hill that, you know, the other road didn't have that hill. We're doing a lot more work. But you'll find that it actually ends up being easier because teaching your toddler and your, you know, your two-year-old and four-year-old how to talk to each other to work out problems means you're not still intervening when they're 12 and 10. And they're actually really good friends, right? It's a whole different ballgame by then. So even if your kids are already 10 and 12, you can make a difference now so it'll be easier in a few years. And so, yes, it is more work right now, but... Every step you take in the right direction, even if three-quarters of the steps you took today took you back on the old path, every step you take on the new path takes you closer to that more positive destination. Laura, thank you so much for spending this time with us. It was absolutely a pleasure. Great to meet you. That was Dr. Laura Markham, author of Calm Parents, Happy Siblings, How to Stop the Fighting and Raise Friends for Life. And we'll put um, more information up on our website because Laura does have a website. It's called ahaparenting.com and you can sign up to her newsletters and get them in your inbox three times a week. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.